So we have just said together, O come, let us sing unto the Lord, and let us heartily rejoice in the strength of our salvation. That's the opening to Psalm 95, which we call the Venite, after the first word in Latin, O come. And it's how we usually begin morning prayer service um, every day, not just in Anglicanism. People have been doing this since the time of the early church in at least the fourth century. Now perhaps if we're lucky, we might even sing the Venite. And that's what I want to touch on today, singing scripture. As Professor Robinson just noted, Thursday mornings here at Wycliffe, it's customary for the faculty to preach in a series that will go on through the course of a given term. Sometimes we preach on a book of scripture like Jeremiah. Sometimes it's on a key aspect of the Christian life. We've done, for instance, vocation. But this term, we're going to be preaching on the biblical canticles or songs, those parts of Scripture that we know are, in fact, songs indeed, like the Song of Moses at the Red Sea from Exodus 15, or the so-called Magnificat, the Song of Mary from Luke 1, and so on. And I'm going to start this morning off with a brief reflection on singing the Bible more broadly. Now, not just singing in the Bible, although that's important to get straight too. We know, for instance, that singing took place among the peoples of the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's obvious, right? Paul in Colossians, for instance, urges that, quote, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs be sung with grace in our hearts. And, of course, people have been doing this for generations. But as is also obvious, we only have the words to a few of these songs that the Israelites and early Christians sang. We don't have access to the music itself. Now, that may be theologically significant, but it's also created problems. Because we tend to approach the Bible only as a textual document, words on a page, to be read or to be spoken. In the 18th century, Scholars realized that there was such a thing as biblical poetry. But they still treated it like the literary critics of their day treated it. That is, as a form of speech. But in preliterate societies, poetry was probably never spoken as a discourse. It was, and I subscribe to this theory, always sung. So if there is poetry in the Bible, we can be sure it was sung by singers. It wasn't read. It was sung. Now the Bible itself touches on the origin of music in its own way. We're told, for instance, in Genesis 4, that Jubal, the son of Lamech, was, quote, the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. There is, however, no mention of human beings singing until Moses stands in triumph over the Egyptians having passed through the sea, and he sings through God. It was a song so famous that it is repeated in heaven, according to the book of Revelation, the song of Moses. Now David, as we heard a moment ago, is of course the paragon 
of the biblical musician, skilled at the lyre and at songwriting, calming through his singing the madness of Saul, composing musical prayers that became part of the Psalter. David himself, as we just heard in First Chronicles, invents instruments for the praise of the Lord. And he personally organizes singers and instrumentalists for the service of the tabernacle and then obviously the temple, appointing famously Heman, Asaph, and Ethan as singers. Sing to the Lord a new song, he writes, or sings probably. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. That's from Psalm 33. The beginning of some of the psalms hint at melodies that we think were probably used and uh, assigned to these songs. And the word sing occurs over 65 times in the book of Psalms, not surprisingly, but also elsewhere in the book of Isaiah, the word sing occurs over 20 times in the most astonishing of ways, if you want to trace it out. Now, to be sure, singing with instruments was also seen at times as frivolous and as a sign of sinful dissipation. The lyre, the harp, the timbrel, flutes, and wine. They all go together, people like Amos sometimes seems to indicate. But the judgment uh, like this is actually rather rare in the Bible. Jews and Christians have always until modern times seen music as somehow divine in its origin. In the 16th and 17th centuries, a whole argument developed as to whether music was originally voice or instrumental. After all, Jubal and his instruments is mentioned before Moses and his tongue. But the consensus landed on the human voice. The philosopher Rousseau, sometime later, famously speculated that human language itself originated first in musical song. We sang, he argued, before we ever spoke. And common discourse, he said, is a rationalistic debasement of the heartfelt communication that musical speech primordially had for human beings. Now, part of the reason that Christian philosophers pressed for the voice as more original than instruments in music was the deep insight that creation itself sings to God. And certainly the Psalms, and as I said, Isaiah tell us this, meadows, trees, hills, birds, even the seas and the very heavens and depths of the earth make song to their Lord. Over and over again we read of this in the Psalms and in the prophets. The very act of creation is one upheld by singing. So, for instance, God says to Job, Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Hence, songs of praise seem to be part of created being itself. Music precedes not just human speech, but even the creation of human beings. That's biblical. And even the ancient Greeks had the idea that the planets themselves make music according to the proportions of their orbits. This was taken up by Christian thinkers like Boethius, most famously by the 17th century Christian astronomer and mathematician Johannes Kepler, 
The music of the spheres, you've heard that phrase, is what he called it. That harmonious sound of the very universe. Now it might seem absurd that planets could make a sound in the middle of empty space. But the ultimate idea here is that it's God who hears this music because God has created a world that in its very being exists in constant praise of its creator. Isaac Newton's notion was that space is a divine, he called it sensorium, a place where God touches everything. It's the realm where God perceives his creation. And I think it actually catches some of what I'm talking about. God feels, God hears the sound of everything he creates. That's in fact what creation does in its internal being. It praises God in song. So that to be alive, to be a creature, is fundamentally to be a song to God. Well, if that's true, isn't it odd that in the 16th and 17th centuries, debates arose amongst Christians over the place of music in the church? Reformed Calvinists were the most contentious. No offense to those Reformed folks here. Calvin himself rejected the use of musical instruments in church because he said it was still too much bound to the shadows of the Old Testament that had now passed away in Christ. All that stuff in Chronicles. And he also seems to have forbade the singing of non-biblical hymns. Still, Calvin did encourage psalm singing as a form of liturgical prayer and had the psalms translated into metrical versions that could be easily followed by a congregation and set to simple tunes. He even commissioned settings and song of the Song of Simeon, the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, and the Ten Commandments, and you can find some of these. It's interesting to sing the Ten Commandments the way that was put, put together. Thou shalt not serve a graven image, a jealous God am I, your Lord. It's not something we tend to do, but they did it. But Calvin's Puritan followers in Britain, they pressed this notion that the Old Testament is a shadow to the extreme. And they were convinced that nothing should be done in church services that was not laid out explicitly in the New Testament. The Old Testament liturgical practices, they said, had been abrogated by the New. So that if the Psalms were to be sung, it should never be in the liturgy, only before or after church services, and only in a unison tune, never in harmony. Interesting, something Dietrich Bonhoeffer said also. They were adamant that prayer itself was to be spontaneous. It comes from your heart. And thus to say, let alone sing something from Scripture as one's own prayer, was both irrelevant and irreverent. It's not yours. Don't do it. Well, as you can imagine, others said nonsense. Reformation Christians in England had been singing since the 1530s the psalms and other biblical canticles in harmony and with instruments. Richard Hooker was the great respondent to the Puritan critiques. And for Hooker, nothing could be more powerful, more transformative than uttering the very words of Scripture as one's own. Because Scripture is spirit-filled. And to pray scripture musically, he said, was even better because it represented the taking of God's own word and creating something beautiful with it by which God might be adored 
through this enabling divine power of the Spirit in it. On more than one occasion, Hooker noted that when we pray and sing before God together, we do so, quote, in the presence of celestial powers. That when we pray and sing before God together, we do so in the presence then of setting forth hymns to God, having his angels intermingled as our associates. We sing, that is, with the morning stars, the sons of God, in Job's words. Now this happens, of course, because even before the angels themselves open their mouths in song, God has opened his. In the words of Zephaniah, The Lord thy God is in the midst of thee and is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. And he will joy over thee with singing. That's God. God sings first. And then creation sings. So that singing scripture means allowing God's melodic and harmonious truth to touch us in a responsive chord. The Spirit sees to how this is done. Singing the Scripture is the epitome of what it means to stand before God as His creature. God sings His own word to us in all of its formative and creative truth, and we in turn, and led by God's Spirit as it enables our particular created being, which is why music isn't printed in Scripture, we sing it back in response. And when that happens, that is the world as it should be. Neither more nor less. Before the beginning of their prayers, writes St. Athanasius long ago, and he's speaking of churches he's visited in Constantinople in the early 4th century. He writes, Christians invite and exhort one another in the words of Psalm 95. Come, let us sing unto the Lord a new song. It's preparatory to hearing God's word, as we do in morning prayer, in part because, as the letter to the Hebrews uses the psalm, it's a call to faithfulness before the word who is Christ. But its call, I would argue, is a fundamentally musical call. It's a joining of us with the most profound aspects of our created being, beginning all prayer, beginning all life itself with praise of God, which is what it means to exist at all. In the name of Christ, amen.